0: We can now ask all kinds of questions related to genomics. Population genomics, the evolutionary history, genetic epidemiology. All of these things are now available to us, and they weren't available to us even just five years ago, and certainly not ten years ago. We have a better understanding now, after maybe ten years of, of trying to apply this kind of technology, than has ever been um, available to us in this kind of area with these neglected infectious organisms.
1: Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genomics Podcast, and really thanks a lot for joining me today for episode 44. In today's show, we're talking about an infectious disease that affects as many as 35 million people worldwide, and according to the World Health Organization, or the WHO, an additional 205 million people are further at risk of developing this disease. Now, by comparison, the WHO estimates that about 36 million people are infected by HIV globally. But the disease that we're discussing today is one that you've probably never heard of. It's called onchocerciasis, sometimes called river blindness. And it's one of about 20 neglected tropical diseases. Neglected tropical diseases, or NTDs, are infectious diseases that primarily impact people from the tropical and subtropical countries, primarily in what we call the developing world. Now, they're neglected in the sense that they primarily impact the world's poor, but in terms of numbers, about one-sixth of the world's population, more than one billion people, currently suffer from an NTD. To talk about onchocerciasis and NTDs, I'm joined by Dr. Warwick Grant, Warwick is professor in the Department of Animal, Plant, and Soil Sciences at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. He's an internationally recognized expert in onchocerciasis research, and he uses genomics technology to better understand mechanisms of drug resistance in this disease. Warwick joined me to discuss how genomics is being used to maximize the impact of treatment for this NTD. So Warwick Grant, Uh, welcome to the genomics podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. You know, genomics has been a really transformative technology for a lot of different applications, but a lot of the effort that's been going on has been focused on the developed world. So this work has been funded primarily by relatively wealthy developed countries, and it's been focused on diseases of the developed world, more or less. Uh, So the disease burden of the developing world sometimes can get overlooked. And your work in particular focuses on one of those neglected diseases called onchocerciasis, and it's sometimes referred to as river blindness. Can you start off our discussion by describing what is onchocerciasis and what is the impact of this disease on the developing world?
0: Yeah, so onchocerciasis is a disease that's caused by a parasitic nematode in humans, and it's Typical of a lot of the uh, so-called neglected diseases, most, most of which, not all of which, but most of which are in fact parasitic diseases, things like malaria as a protozoal parasite. And then there's a range of nematode parasite-related uh, diseases, and onchocerciasis was considered by the World Health Organization to be, if not the most serious of those, and certainly one of the most serious the name river blindness, which is the common name for onchocerciasis, refers to the fact that this disease is actually transmitted by uh, a biting fly that breeds in fast-flowing rivers. And so in sub-Saharan Africa, where more than 99% of the burden of disease occurs, you have a really unfortunate situation where in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the best arable land for subsistence farming is close to rivers but if the farmers want to be close to water they expose themselves to the risk of disease. The best estimates um, based on mapping of disease burden across Africa suggest that there's something like 30 to 35 million people who are currently infected in uh, slightly in excess of another 200 million who are at risk of infection. Across uh, all of sub Saharan Africa, as far south as about Namibia or so. So it's this big swathe down the west coast of Africa, across Central Africa, and in, into East Africa. These are really
1: massive numbers. Um, how have the developing countries handled oncocerciasis in the past? And kind of describe how that has transitioned to the status today. I mean, how is river blindness treated today? And how effective are these medications overall?
0: So this. Parasitic diseases are quite different to infectious diseases caused by, say, viruses or, or bacteria. The, the causative organisms are often very long lived. So, for example, an adult river blindness or onchocerciasis worm, the, the name, name of the worms is Onchocerca volvulus, they'll live for about 12 to 15 years. In the
1: same individual?
0: Yes. And in order to get a new generation, so for the numbers of parasites to to increase, those adult worms produce lots of little baby worms, but those baby worms have to then be taken up by the black fly when it feeds on a person, takes a blood meal, and it swallows some of the little baby worms that are crawling around under the skin of the infected person. And then the fly transmits those to the next person that a Bites. And so unlike a bacterial disease, say, where you might get infected and then the bacterial numbers propagate within the individual, what we're really talking about here is a population of parasites where in order for a new generation to occur, there has to be a transmission event between, between people. So the actual disease state isn't actually caused by the adult parasites. They sit there in big lumpy nodules under the skin, producing thousands of little babies every day. And it's those babies crawling around in the skin and also through the cornea of the eye that cause the pathology. So the pathology is a severe skin disease that's maddeningly itchy, And eventually, in in maybe 5% or so of cases, particularly in the the dry savanna parts of Africa, that migration of those little baby worms through the cornea of the eye will eventually lead to inflammation of the cornea that then results in scarring and, and hence irreversible blindness that cannot be treated. Because there were no drugs available, river blindness was largely untreatable. Until an effort that was initiated in 1975 by the World Health Organization, not to treat the disease, but to try to ...prevent the transmission of the disease by uh, quite literally dumping insecticides into rivers where there were breeding sites. And so about 50,000 kilometres of rivers in West Africa was treated over a period of nearly 20 years... ...with almost weekly applications of insecticide. And that did, in fact, reduce the transmission of the disease to the point where in some parts of West Africa... The disease burden, the infection didn't quite go away, but it was reduced to such a low level over that long period of time that the disease burden was much, much lower. And and so it was a very successful campaign, but it was unbelievably expensive and it came with um, a heavy environmental cost I as well, imagine. of course. So yeah. it, it was never going to be sustainable in the long term, but it was a demonstration that that... Coordinated action could bring about significant change in what had always been regarded as one of the most intractable of these neglected diseases. Then in 1987, uh, there was a a drug that had been already registered for veterinary use that was the first member of a new class of anti-parasite drugs that are called macrocyclic lactones, and this drug was called ivermectin. And it's, it's no exaggeration to say this completely transformed treatment of river blindness because this drug it does not kill the adult worms but it does two really really important things first of all it does kill all the baby worms in the skin and so it's the baby worms that cause disease and so you take ivermectin and the baby worms all die and so the progression of the disease stops that offered protection to people, not from so much from the infection itself, but from the consequences of infection. The other thing that's fairly obvious, if you think about it for a moment with the way that the parasites are transmitted, the transmission depends on the presence of those baby worms in the skin. So the drug, ivermectin, removes the baby worms from the skin. So in principle it can stop transmission. And the third feature of ivermectin treatment that is still unfortunately somewhat deeply mysterious, parasitologists really do not understand how the drug does this, it appears to act as a contraceptive. So you take the drug and the baby worms all disappear from your skin, <clears throat> but then the adult worms, which are, which are not harmed Directly by the drug They don't begin producing more baby worms For several months And so the upshot is that You only really need to take ivermectin once a year Wow So from the late 1980s onwards There was a transition away from vector control uh, Away from putting all those insecticides in the rivers into the widespread use through mass drug administration campaigns of ivermectin. So that today we're talking about getting up towards 150 to 200 million doses of ivermectin being distributed throughout Africa every year. Wow. Uh, and all of that drug is donated. That's great. And so that has completely transformed the, the control of river blindness and has been so effective that in 2012, the decision was made by the control campaign authorities. It was a, an organisation called the African Programme for Onchocerciasis Control that operated in 19 African countries. The decision was made to change the goal from merely controlling the disease to actually eliminating the disease and elimination of disease has been achieved in some parts of Africa. Transmission has now apparently been permanently interrupted. That history of treatment has been, I think, you know, almost unprecedented. It's almost like the advent of penicillin revolutionizing the treatment of bacterial infections. Right. Or
1: vaccines. Oh yeah, yeah. You compared uh, ivermectin with penicillin for treating bacterial infections, and you also said that These individuals that are infected with the nematode, they need to be treated at least once a year for a long time. As you know, for bacteria, you know, the more you treat these bacteria, the more you develop resistance to the particular antibiotic you're using. Recently, you published an article in PLOS, uh, Neglected Tropical Diseases. So in this study, which is really interesting, you're kind of approaching this question of how continuous... Exposure to ivermectin impacts the the nematode and its sensitivity to that drug. Can you sort of set this study up for us? Why did you do the study, and what were some of the things that you found?
0: By the early two thousands, we're talking in in some parts of West Africa, particularly in countries like Ghana and so on, upwards of fifteen years of ivermectin use. And in general, the use of ivermectin had done just what I said; it had reduced. The prevalence of the disease that had interrupted transmission, but there were a small number of foci of transmission that seemed to not only persist despite a long history of ivermectin treatment, but where there was, there was mounting evidence that, that actually the situation was going into reverse, that the decline in, in parasite burdens was no longer declining, but had certainly leveled off and may even be beginning to increase. And so, uh, led by a a Ghanaian physician who unfortunately is, is no longer with us, Dr. Kwabla Awadzi, a number of very carefully controlled clinical studies were done to carefully test the efficacy of ivermectin in these apparent treatment failure communities. And what Dr. Awadzi showed very clearly was that, yes, indeed, as any bacteriologist would predict, you use a single drug for a long period of time and eventually resistance will arise. And we're not quite sure whether we should call it resistance, but it's certainly what you would call a suboptimal response. The WHO approached me and a number of other people and said, well, we think we might have a problem here. Could you use some of the tools that you've been using in these veterinary nematodes to investigate this in parasitic nematodes and in particular in, in river blindness. Up to that point a lot of work on the evolution of drug resistance in parasitic nematodes had relied on on detailed knowledge of, of mechanism of action and so you could kind of guess what the mechanism of resistance might be by looking at the mechanism of action. We didn't have that advantage and so what we tried to do was to take advantage of what at the time was a what we thought was a huge data set of EST data that had been generated from oncocychiasis parasites, and we looked for variation across the genome in these ESTs that had been generated by traditional Sanger sequencing, a, a huge effort, <laughs> um, and we found, not surprisingly, that there was indeed a lot of genetic variation, and we began to see hints that that parasites that come from populations with long histories of ivermectin treatment were indeed genetically different to parasites that had not been subjected to that long history. And so the paper to which you were referred was the culmination of more than five years or so of of work of trying to take advantage of what was then the, the sort of the beginnings of uh, next generation genome sequencing and genome-wide association studies that were beginning to to take off in human medicine. And so we we sort of looked at that and we thought, wow, you know, here's here's a technology and an analytical approach to those kinds of data that we could apply to our parasites. And so we were still trying to take a a kind of hypothesis-free approach to this. The only hypothesis with which we started was that the change in drug sensitivity in these parasite populations would have a genetic component to it. And if we could look at the whole genome without trying to second-guess what might be going on, we would find evidence for that selection. And that is indeed what we we published in that 2017 paper was was that we, through collaborations with Kwabla Awadzi and his team in Ghana and a similar team in Cameroon, we obtained parasites from patients that had apparently failed treatment and parasites from patients where the treatment had been successful there was a strong genetic signal that was associated with that change in drug sensitivity.
1: Before the mics were on, you were talking about how next-gen sequencing, how NGS, how it really kind of impacted the work that you do in your lab, and you also intimated that you know one of the benefits you saw in your work was this unbiased approach, where you didn't have a lot of uh, information about the genetics or the mechanism of action. Is that the kind of thing that's really impacted what you're doing, the ability to kind of just analyze genome-wide before bringing assumptions to the table about what the biology might show?
0: Absolutely. I think that this is, from an intellectual point of view, this has been both the most challenging but also the most satisfying aspect of this work, is that finally, with these organisms, you can't culture them, they're obligate parasites of humans in parts of the world where the healthcare systems don't really, they certainly don't function in the way that we understand healthcare systems should function. And so the ability now, working with very small amounts of material that is not in great shape uh, in terms of, of preservation of, of the DNA and so on, Yeah, you know, we, we can get whole genomes from, even now, from baby worms collected from human skin.
1: From individual baby yeah, yeah,
0: worms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they have about 200 nuclei. And admittedly, we, we do use a bit of genome amplification, but we, we can now ask all kinds of questions Related to genomics and, you know, the population genomics, the evolutionary history, genetic epidemiology, all of these things are now available to us and they weren't available to us even just five years ago and certainly not 10 years ago. We have a better understanding now after maybe 10 years of, of trying to apply this kind of technology than than has ever been available to us in this kind of, of area with these neglected infectious organisms.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. There's a couple of things I want to ask you related to the, the resistance that you've been studying. So the mechanisms that you've uncovered, does that have any practical implications beyond the particular nematode that causes onchocerciasis? You know, are are the mechanisms that you're studying do they you know, do they potentially apply to other nematodes?
0: The short answer to that question is yes. So we have, just in the last year or so, we have started a similar kind of genomics work on the nematode that is the causative organism of of the human disease lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis, which even though the manifestation of the disease is quite different with elephantiasis compared to river blindness, the underlying biology, because it's caused by a very closely related parasite that's also transmitted in case of erphatic filariasis by mosquitoes rather than blood-feeding flies, there are lots of biological parallels and the genomes are actually pretty well conserved. And so although with, with lymphatic filariasis, there doesn't appear to be the same potential for, for drug resistance to evolve as quickly, the same other you know, sort of practical applications have been able to use this genome sequence to, to develop better diagnostic tools and to, for example, study transmission and epidemiology at a much, much finer level of resolution. They're all uh, available to us now for, for other parasitic diseases.
1: You find onchocerciasis in certain, parts, certain other parts of the world outside of Sub-Saharan Africa, right? And, you know, this black fly, the vector for it, it doesn't only exist in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Yeah. So, with the kind of climate pressures that the planet is undergoing with climate change, we're starting to see movement of pathogens into areas that we haven't seen before. Does the developed world have anything to, to fear from onchocerciasis?
0: For onchocerciasis, probably not. However, ha- having said that, the related disease that I've mentioned a couple of times, lymphatic filariasis, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, there is very, very clearly the potential for lymphatic fil- filariasis to spread into parts of the world where it does not currently exist. And in fact, there's from, from genome sequencing, we can now track the global transmission of these parasite diseases. And it's really clear that lymphatic filariasis spread out of Southeast Asia into Africa and all through the Pacific about 3,000 to 5,000 years ago as uh, longer range seafaring trading got going from East Asia. So, again, you know, all of that movement of people and the presence of mosquitoes all over the place capable of transmitting the disease, the disease, lymph- lymphatic filariasis, is now global, um, whereas on- onchocerciasis is still pretty much restricted to Africa, and it's, it's, it's most likely going to stay there.
1: What does the future look like in terms of applying genomics analysis to understanding disease burden in neglected diseases But also in looking at these types of parasitic diseases, what does the future hold? What kinds of technologies are you expecting over the next five to 10 years?
0: Well, what my research group is working toward with partners in in Africa is to try to develop some diagnostic platforms now that are based on genetic technologies. Maybe not trying to establish next-generation sequencing in sub-Saharan Africa, that might be a bit of a bridge too far, but certainly the much greater understanding that we now have from work with technologies like next-generation sequencing that knowledge is only going to expand and with, with increasing rapidity. And so what we're trying to do now is to f- find ways of trying to develop diagnostic platforms based on that genetic information about the, the, the agents that cause these diseases that are suitable for application in, in developing uh, countries. And so I'm actually pretty optimistic. I, I think that e- even, you know, very modest investment in this area and especially if some of the, the, the tech companies that are developing these kinds of platforms for diagnosis of genetic-based diagnosis in the developed world were able to give those of us who are interested in neglected disease in the developing world a bit of a, a hand with the, the technology platforms. I'm really confident that we can make a, a, a big impact and, and that goal, for example, of elimination of of river blindness from sub-Saharan Africa might become a little bit easier to reach than it appears to be at the moment. At the moment, it's a it's a fifty-fifty. But um, with better diagnostic tools based on the kind of information we have now, I think we can make that more like a you know seventy-thirty proposition than a fifty-fifty proposition. And and that would be a really satisfying thing to to be able to contribute to.
1: Work. that's a wonderful vision for the future, a really hopeful vision. This has been a fantastically interesting discussion, and I think the work that you're doing is is really important. And thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Well,
0: thank you. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity.
1: Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS, has enabled scientists to better understand diseases of the developed world. But NGS technology now has the potential to transform our understanding of neglected tropical diseases as well. The unbiased nature of NGS and genomics technologies in general are really well-suited to studying challenging organisms in the context of challenging healthcare systems. And genomics holds the promise of maximizing the impact of drug treatment for onchocerciasis. Hey, if you like today's show, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also listen to our show from Siri, Alexa, or your Google assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Shalin Naik of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute at the University of Melbourne. We'll be discussing his use of single-cell genomics to better understand immune system development and function, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.